welcome to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my co-host, Bob Sakura. We're here. We're here. So uh, last week we read um, canonical poems, and now this week we are reading stuff that we think should be canon. These are poems and or poets we think should be talked about more, should be read more, essentially a whole episode of, you know who's underrated? <laughs> we talked a bit last week about how problematic the canon is, how it's overwhelmingly white and male, how it's frustratingly ancient and both populated by and gatekept by a lot of corny dorks who don't give a single shit about 90% of the people forced to read them. The amount of poets who should be canon, both historical and contemporary, is innumerable. Personally, I've given up on any kind of academic career. Podcasting is much easier. But I like to play a game with myself sometimes where I design syllabi. It's usually just connecting themes with stuff I'm reading because a lot of the reading I do is, you know, sort of used in conjunction with writing projects. But yeah, it's like, you know, how would I teach a horror lit class? How would I teach a Southern lit class? That sort of thing. And generally, for whatever reason, I like to start with something canonical and then find a bunch of lesser known stuff. So if I was doing horror, for instance, I'd start with like Dracula and then move into, say, Zach Schomburg and um, Nana Kwame Are. Ajay Benya, I always have trouble with his last name, uh, Kelly Link, you know, people like that, like people who just don't get like a ton of shine, but, but you know, I could connect back to like some sort of canonical work, like sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know why I do that, but I, I always like to think of things in those terms. It connects back to how excited I was to be introduced to new writers um, that I ended up liking that were some professor's weird niche favorites. <laughs> um, and I want to give that same joy of discovery to all my friends and parents and my kid and everybody. And um, yeah, you know, and it's just, you know, writers who give me the kind of excitement of discovery that Andrew Marvell and Sammy Taylor Coley's don't give me. (laughs) Uh, um, All all old poets uh, we need to be on a a first name, nickname basis with just, yeah, 100%. They're all Billy Shakes. Uh, They're all uh, Uncle Walt. Um, Uncle Walt yeah. is a good one. <laughs> um, so, Bob, you've been given sole editorial power over the newest 600-page Norton anthology. <laughs> How are you picking poets? And as someone who once rejected a chapbook submission from a great American author named Chris Corlew, why does your opinion matter? <laughs> I was excited about this one. <laughs> um. Well, we you you do um, bring us back to anthologies, which we talked about last week, um, and I you know I I, I stand by um, that I think uh, the full quote unquote great uh, anthology of of poetry with no other qualifications there is a fool's errand, a ridiculous idea. Um, I would much prefer, very much like you're saying about your those courses that you're designing in your head. Um, anthologies that are thematically based or some sort of time period or some sort of like connection between people based. That's just, a, that would just be a better practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also, if someone assigned me to do that, I would at the very least ask for help. If not, just tell them that someone else is probably. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> but I mean, you would, you do bring up as an editor. Um, I have, uh, a ton of mixed feelings about um, situations where I have been in a position to decide or gatekeep. 
um, yeah. and why on earth it should be me. And I, I don't have a great answer sure. <laughs> in those yeah. positions. I think um, on one level, there's a little bit of like, I think any poet like should be able to jump into that kind of position. Um, like obviously right. right now, like with hierarchies and big publishing and academia, there's a lot of reasons why people don't get into those positions. Um, but I, you know, coming from a place of not seeing myself as any um, bigger or more important than anyone else. But also when I have been put in those positions, um, I generally do defer and try and get other people to have a say um, yeah. in conjunction with me. Um, my current editorial role, I make zero decisions. Um, I, I, I support the team. <laughs> I do the website. Um, and I'm like, really, I'm happy with that. I, I, I yeah. don't think um, it's, it's my place to be arbitrating what gets in, what doesn't get in. Um, and, and certainly if the editors have questions or stuff, I'm, I'm there to chime in. Um, my role is to make sure the machine keeps moving as opposed to being a gatekeeper. And I like that. That's a roundabout way to not answer your question. No, no, I think, I think that's a good answer, though, because I, I do think you're getting at, you know, some problems with, with being an editor. And, and one beautiful thing about the uh, small press lit magazine is that, like, yeah, sometimes, like, what you public what gets published is just like what the editor was in the mood to read that day. Right. Um, and that there are problems with that, but that's also not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Right. Um, I remember when the, the only time I've been editing a, a literary magazine was, uh, in college. And, um, I, uh, I took on the editor in chief role inheriting a, um, is Loyola's literary magazine publishing porn scandal for my previous editor in chief? Um, I was so, in that issue. You were in that issue. I was. I was on the centerfold. Oh, that's right. You were. Oh there's man. This, there's a, there's yeah. a, a photograph and a guy. I took classes with him, so we talked about it at some point. He took up his girlfriend, and like it's from behind, and she's taking off her top, and like the lake yeah. is behind in the dorm room, and then my poem is just like next to the picture of this woman. Yeah, your poem is in like the upper. Third yeah. of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I submitted two po- I think I had two poems in that issue. I don't know about the I don't know about both of them, but one of them like it's like a million percent. There is nothing about sex in this. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like it, it and I think mostly it's just like bad early Bob poetry, um, where it's it's vague. It's you know, it's not specific, it's it's fluffy language for the sake of being fluffy language. Sure. Um, but at the time, I took a lot of great satisfaction in that. Like, ooh, my poem's so good, they think it's about sex. It's not dirty. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but yeah, but for, I brought that up. That, that issue was pulled after after one day, a huge, uh, a, not, I mean, huge is an overstatement, but it was drama on a Catholic college campus. <laughs> yeah, and oh, I brought God. that story up to say that I made a lot of editorial decisions based on I'm 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 going to restore this magazine's reputation because uh, there's good writers on Loyola uh, on Loyola's campus. There's there's a big poetry scene and 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 we deserve respect from the higher ups. Which looking back on is just like who cares what the higher ups think? They're Catholics. Like it's fine. <laughs> I was gonna say an issue that's like so provocative that you have to the campus talks about it, have to remove it. Like that to me is a success. Right. Right. Learned. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I was always a big proponent of we should have never apologized for anything, but you know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you you do you have you have opened up the door uh, since you called me out for being involved in an editorial team that did not uh, choose a selection of yours. 
Um, one of my earliest memories of you um, was we were at a party. Oh, no, this isn't like, going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> we had probably met or been introduced. Um, I went to one meeting of the Loyal Literary Journal and just like, I don't know, didn't come back. I should have. Um, and you were at that meeting. You also showed up late. Um, <laughs> but, um, and <laughs> but so we're at this party and it must have been like charles like reintroducing us yeah and you remembered my name and you very much remembered this poem that and you told me how much you admired this poem um and then the conversation ended and then i, I looked to charles or i looked to whoever was with me and i was like they rejected that poem i don't know what he's talking about <laughs> Well, one thing about my editorial decisions was uh, uh, it was a very democratic staff. It was always a, a everyone everyone voted, and uh, no matter how I felt about it, um, right. it had to go with the with the with the staff. I don't remember the poem. Don't remember the time. It was a long time ago, but I'm sure I fought tooth and nail for it because um, I did admire you in undergrad. So, <laughs> but that's that's very funny. <laughs> But yeah, I guess we got on that tangent because of like, yeah, like I, the only time I ever had an editorial role, I felt like a pressure to be whatever prestigious means with mm. editorial decisions, sure. which now thinking like if you like, let's say you and I were going to start a, a the, the line break magazine tomorrow, mm. I wouldn't feel that pressure at all. I'd just be like, we're just going to publish what we like and like not worry about it. We publish you know, 10 poems a quarter or whatever. And like, that's, right. that's our thing. Right. Um, but yeah, if, if Norton came calling, I'd probably tell them to talk to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's exactly it is, is whether it be a small scale literary magazine kind of thing or <laughs> Norton for whatever reason calling, you know, I, the, the, the trouble with the canon is how few people have been involved in making those choices over a long period of time. Yeah, um, and I mean, yeah, it's funny because it's not like there's a room of dudes conspiring. Um, no, historically, this thing happening, right? Um, but that's the thing: it's like people do get put into positions where they can make choices that do affect that historical movement towards whatever the canon is and whatever it becomes. And I think there's a better job being done. There's certainly still gaps, um, sure. huge gaps, yeah. and, and huge oversights. Um, but to, to make sure that that conversation is open to different kinds of people and different kinds of poets. And like you said, like giving opportunities to folks who have traditionally not been, um, allowed in the canon and not been accepted. Um, right. That, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing when, when people complain about like, oh, we got to hit these like quotas for diversity or these like benchmarks or whatever. And it's, it's the, it's, it's reverse racism. And it's like, no, what it, what it really is, is just like. You just you're gonna have your, your blind spots based on your experience. You're gonna have. Sorry, we did it again. Uh, the the you're gonna have the things that you miss based on your own experience, based on for you and me being cis straight white men mm-hmm. um, that we're not gonna see. You know, for people of different races, people of different sexual orientations, people of uh, you know different abilities, and you know just just different experiences in general. Right. And the um, the experience of reading is all the more richer when it is expanded and opened up to different experiences. Exactly. Yeah. So with all that in mind, Bob, who are you adding to the canon today? You made me feel better about the choice um, in the, in the sense of you not being as familiar um, because I, I think thankfully um, this is, this is in the process of being 
reassess. But I wanted to talk about Wanda Coleman today. And she just, so she, she, is, she has passed away, um, which is part of the reason I, I, I had a, I don't know, when I was thinking about who to choose and who to add to the canon, I think when I initially proposed this as a topic, I was thinking of like very, very contemporary. Um, but then I thought about like, oh, maybe, you know, someone who's had some time, um, but still has been looked over. Um, I had a similar thought process, yeah. But um, getting getting back to that, um, you know, they uh, her selected poems or a new selected poems was just published, I believe, last year. It might even be this year. And so there, I think, you know, there's there's conversation about her again. Thank goodness. But definitely, was one of those things where this was a poet I certainly had not heard of for a very, you know, I went very well into my time of thinking and caring about poetry and not hearing about her. And at some point, um, the phrase "American Sonnet" became part of my poetry vocabulary, but I didn't have any kind of real frame of reference um, where it came from, what it meant. Um, and then a couple of years ago, Terrence Hayes' book, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, came out, and he very explicitly is influenced by Wanda Coleman and referencing her work. And so whatever um, the American sonnet may or may not be, she was writing these for a long time and calling them American sonnets. And, and I guess um, one of the reasons... I get worked up thinking about her and thinking about these sonnets um, as I was reading a book on a book with essays on form. And I was very interested in like history stuff. And it was one of those things where after I got it, I was like, I don't really want this, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> um, and the section on sonnets understandably starts with Shakespearean and Petrarchan and even earlier, but it moves all the way up to um, Ted Berrigan's The Sonnets, which were these cut-ups that were written in the yeah. 70s, I want to say. And they're great. I think that's about right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're good. Incredible. Yeah. But it felt like, especially in light of the fact that um, Terrence Hayes was bringing Wanda Coleman's work back up to attention, like right around the same time as that book was coming out, or this book, I don't know. Um, it just felt like this huge oversight to stop with that and to not talk about Wanda Coleman's American Sonnets, which came out in the decades following. Um, I believe like a lot of her work was late 80s, early 90s. But now I'm talking too much without reading the poem. So let's read it. Then we can talk some more. Sounds great. Um, yeah, let's, let's read it and then get granule. <laughs> this is... American Sonnet 66, after Vallejo. I am dying in Lala, in a blizzard of sun, where my killers always profit from my death. Look here at the flat little rectangle of embossed gray stone, the evidence of days. And there, the ants have taken over, speeding busily to and from the oblivious hill. Something tiny yet beautiful has declared root, an abundant pinkness. And over there, it's white sister. And listen, the precocious, costly silence broken only by the distant sigh of an airplane's landing and the aria of a sad bird on its sagging wire above the unkempt yard. So many's the years one must pay till paying is up, and only the lucky find their ways underground. Oh, thirst. Oh, pride. I am dying in Lala, in a sun blaze, in a dream dreamt, then forsaken. Yeah, I love this poem. Uh, yeah, that, I read it three times in a row when you sent it to me the other night and, um, you know, was reading it again this morning to prep. And it might be my favorite that you brought to the podcast so far. I don't know. It's really Ooh. good. Um, yeah. I, so I, I just did the cursory who is Wanda Coleman research and Wikipedia tells me she is the unofficial poet laureate of Los Angeles. Also one of the reasons I was excited about her. Yeah. 
I am endlessly fascinated by L.A. We've talked about it before, but uh, I, I love its weird geography, how beautiful it is, and how that beauty is paired with just open, naked corruption everywhere. How much everyone seems to agree that it both sucks and is awesome at the same time. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of that in this poem. The speaker is dying in a blizzard of sun, which just, what a turn of phrase. What a great right. line. And killers always profit from death, which is that so L.A. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, that last stanza, I'm dying in Lala in a sun blaze, in a dream dreamt then forsaken. Um it's too smart to be an Anthony Kiedis Red Hot Chili Peppers line, but like that could be in a Tom Waits song. Um, and yeah, I yeah, I, I love this poem, and it immediately made me want to uh, uh, read a whole bunch more, which I haven't done yet because I had to prep for the podcast. But um. fair. <laughs> um, I, so I um, choose her, even though even really myself not being overly familiar with her work, um, just like was one of those things where once the name caught my eye, once I knew. Um, the Selected was coming out, just kept seeing these poems pop up on Twitter and elsewhere and whatever. And again, I did, you know, I, I at some point had done some research in the, the American Sonnet about hers. And before this Selected volume was published, a lot of her stuff was out of print, hard to find. And just was someone who, every time I came across one of her poems, I was like, oh, damn. Like, yeah. there's so much going on here in such incredible language. Like you said, these turns. This poem... I think, you know, it's representative of, of her work in that sense, um, sure. in that it's compact, every line having something interesting and some moves going on. And I, I love that it's like kind of this tight focus on the natural world, um, but yeah. clearly like not like a nature poem. You yeah, know? there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of foliage in this poem <laughs> without, <laughs> a, without, a, without it being like a pastoral poem at all. Yeah. Right. Um, and on the other hand, I, uh, and I guess it, it's getting into the political, but I think this is not representative of her work in the sense that a lot of her stuff is like overtly political. Mm -hmm. Um, some of it, you know, very explicitly sexual, very much engaging with racism, um, engaging with LA. Yeah. I just, cause I was, this was one of the ones that I like had noticed and caught my attention and I down, and I borrowed the digital version from my campus library, which was really exciting to do last night. Sure, um, sure. And, and was paging through a bunch of these sonnets. Um, and, and yeah, it was hard to find um, one, which one I, I liked the most Two, which one um, I think was like most representative of her work. Um, I couldn't do that. I just picked this one because I loved it. Sure. Yeah. That's understandable. That's kind of what I did with mine too. So. <laughs> right. One of the things we were saying, and I think this is actually true of, of both the poets we chose today, um, is, is last week we were talking about the canon and just how important it is to like read as much as you freaking can. Yeah. Um, and this is a poet who I feel like is is really original in a lot of ways, but she has a ton of these poems after whoever, after whoever, after whoever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and just like very clearly her reading influenced her work so much. I'm always like kind of jealous of that. I don't have, I have not written many if any poems where i'm like explicitly this is after this one i want to think about and engage with this poem sure um, but i, think I always i like doing that but i always end up um being intimidated by the other writer being so much more better than me that i <laughs> that I, I i write the uh after whomever poem and then i alter it so much that it's not after them anymore uh just because i'm like Ooh, i don't know if i deserve to be <laughs> to put this person's name next to my stuff. 
Uh, can confirm from people online there are people who do not care about that. They're saying, nope, it's after that person. It started that way. No, I mean, well, because, I mean, my thinking, too, is also, like, all art is after something else, you know? Right. So I'm just like, I, 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 I guess I'm too nervous and too reverent, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> um, real quick, do you, um, do you have a, uh, distillation of what, a, a quick, like, 101 guide to what the American sonnet is? Like, I know that either Shakespeare or Petrarch has the 12 lines, then two lines of turn, and then one of them has the eight lines and then six lines of turn. Um, camera, which is which, uh, what, um, what would separate and define an American sonnet from the Italian or British songs? I'm hesitant to try and define it. Um, just in the sense of like, I clearly need to read, read more both of her work or what other people have said about it. Um, sure. I, I, I've thought about it. I've spent some time on it. A short answer is that it avoid lots of lots of those rules. Sure, yeah, yeah. That it like, and to me, I like this. I I I am interested in this idea. I just don't know how much like Wanda Coleman or Terrence Hayes would say that their poems are doing this. Sure. But I like this idea of part of being an American sonnet is insisting that it's a sonnet regardless of how much it follows those sonnet rules. Okay, I like um, that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Did um, you ever read uh, Joshua Beckman's book? Um, Damn, what is it? I think it's called Shake It. It might be the one before Shake It. I don't think so. I don't know. Uh, it was it was one that we read in in undergrad workshop, so it's been forever. Mm-hmm. But like the uh, the middle section is like ten or fifteen sonnets that are only sonnets because they're fourteen lines, and he calls the section sonnets. Okay. And uh, Patrick Culleton, I don't know if you uh, ever met him, was uh, subbing our class that week, and he's like, "So what do we make of these being sonnets?" And everyone was just kind of like, they don't really do anything sonnets do, but they're 14 lines, so <laughs> he calls them sonnets. Um, and I have been obsessed with that idea ever since. So it's right. funny that um, the definition you gave was pretty much exactly of how I think a sonnet is. It's just like, it's 14 <laughs> lines. Like, who cares? Like, I wanted to pull this from poets.org. <laughs> Reputable website. <laughs> modern sonnets. Uh, the sonnet has continued to engage modern poetry, many of whom also took up the sonnet sequence. Rainer Maria Roque, Robert Lowell, John Berryman, stretched and teased formally and thematically. Today's sonnet can often only be identified by the ghost imprint that haunts it, recognizable Ooh. by the presence of 14 lines or even by name only. Uh, recent practitioners of the so-called American sonnet include Gerald Stern, Wanda Coleman, Ted Berrigan, and Karen Volkman. And that only like a little bit helps, and it still doesn't get quite at the American point. Um, sure. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of across the board part of what is happening because people are writing sonnets again. <laughs> like right. That, right. That thing is happening, um, and I don't, you know, I don't know if we would. I don't even know if I want to say people ever stopped, but I mean, like, I think the sonnet has become a little bit more a part of popular American poetic imagination. That sounded like a lot. That was a heavy statement. Um, but we're never going to um, get a poetry foundation grant if you don't say things like that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, maybe if it's not true for the American sonnet, I think what is true of a lot of contemporary sonnet writing is this, um, like it says, that pushing and pulling with what the theoretical form can be, that ghost imprint. I really like that language. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, um, there's something sonnety about it. Um, I'm sure that you can find someone 
will argue that a sonnet just needs 14 lines and a turn and maybe not even the turn. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I want to litigate that here again. <laughs> uh, it's happened on Twitter before. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in playing with the form in that way. Certainly. Yeah. And I, I've mentioned before that, yeah, sometimes I do like just as a writing challenge, just like make 14 notches in a notebook and be like, okay, write right. a sonnet today, you know? So yeah, there's something about that that's appealing to me. I took us away from the poem though. <laughs> so. looking back to the poem how we said it. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. It's a 15 line poem. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> Foiled. Um, <laughs> I mean, the form is so interesting here. We have a, a couplet, a big long stanza, a single line stanza, and then another couplet that is recalling the beginning of the poem. Um, yeah, so that, it know, is line breaks cool. that you wouldn't associate with the sonnet at all. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But at least like that, it has some sort of internal logic working, whether it, you know, works with the sonnet rules or not. Right. Right. Um, that O thirst, O pride is a type of turn, you know, <laughs> like we could call that. Yeah. Turn. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a line break after uh, what, um, that's three, four, five. It's a line break after a 10 line stanza. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it's O thirst, O pride, line break, and then the echo of the opening line of I am right, dying right. in Lala um, in a sun blaze instead of in a blizzard of sun, whatever the difference between that is, um, is, you know, is, is, is happening. Yeah. So there's, I mean, yeah, you could call that a turn if you wanted to, and um, <laughs> then you could, uh, you could, uh, you know, go back and, and do your old high school English meaning making with the uh, last two lines if you wanted to. But yeah, there's gestures to, to formal stuff, I would say. Right, right. I could get kind of wrapped up in that conversation about what is and what is a sonnet, but I am so taken by the language here that for yeah. me, this is like a, this is a, this is a big, I want to zoom in. Um, so you're taking about, you're taken by the part of poetry that's cool and not the part of poetry that's uncool. <laughs> um i mean this is just like such a classic example of of the language being so simultaneously precise and surprising and concise um the ants have taken over speeding busily to and from the oblivious hill oblivious hill is incredible and a great library yeah (laughs) yeah The distant sigh of an airplane's landing. Unbelievable. Yeah. The aria of a sad bird on its sagging wire above the unkempt yard. It's it's great because it is like, you know, we were talking about um, it being a lot of like natural imagery, but explicitly not a pastoral poem. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything you just highlighted is extremely urban too. I mean, maybe I'm just picturing Los Angeles in my head as I'm reading it, but like, like ants don't care if they have to go across miles of concrete to, <laughs> you know, just like get all up in your shit and annoy the hell out of you. And then the, um, the other one you brought up of the, uh, um, the, the bird, um, on a sagging wire, it's, it, it, it might be, uh, hard for some of our younger, younger listeners to imagine, but, um, uh, birds, natural habitats aren't telephone wires. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I, but yeah, just every everything is like there's there's so much nature imagery, but it's it's very clearly set in a city. I've never quite put my finger on it um, the way you just said it, but treating the city um, 
to kind of uh, a pastoral fascination is incredibly Bobcore. I'm so about that. <laughs> um, I, I think I've tried to write that way and failed. And I think having a name for it might be helpful. Um, so thank I, you. <laughs> I like the idea. Yeah, I think I think you should you should explore it. Yeah, um, you just finished one book. You got to start another one. So <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> Urban pastoral. Um, There's your next title. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call it that. It's terrible. <laughs> no good. <laughs> and and I think you know just uh, hanging over the head of this poem. My killers always profit from my death. Um, so many is the years one must pay till paying is up. And only the lucky find their ways underground. I, you know, I, I love, again, that tucked into this poem um, are issues of, of debt, um, of poverty. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, Capitalism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, there, that there's a critique in here, even if it's, I don't know how we were going to describe it or how we were, but it's there. Well, what did you say? What was the, uh, what was the line about uh, sonnet form that it's it's uh, haunting or whatever? It, um, it's just kind of, it is there, and then the yeah. rest of the poem does other things. Right. But you can't not think about it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, love a poem to do all of the things at once. <laughs> 15 lines. Fits in 15 lines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can do it. Make those 15 lines count. Make those 15 lines count. I was going to say, you know, someone who never wrote a poem that was less than 15 lines. <laughs> I was going to say, are you ready to read us a poem that's a lot more than 15 lines? It's a lot more than 15 lines. So I, uh, I, do, uh, I do have to apologize a little bit for, uh, for all my posturing up top about how problematic the canon is. I am adding a white male to the canon. <laughs> Just... So embarrassing. I wrote the intro and I was like, man, you're reading fucking Frank Stanford this week. <laughs> so, but the reason I picked Frank Stanford, the reason he immediately jumped out to me when we started kicking around this topic months and months ago is actually on the, uh, the, the two blurbs on the back of this book. Uh, this is a uh, printing of the singing knives blurbs from uh, David Cluel. Um, who I assume listeners have heard of. I have not. Stanford is in touch with some of, some of poetry's more primal and mysterious possibilities. Uh, and then from James Wright, who I assume listeners have heard of because I have not. It is astonishing to me that I was not even aware of this superbly accomplished and moving poet. There is a great deal of pain in these poems, but it is a pain that makes sense, a tragic pain whose meaning rises from the way poems are so firmly molded and formed from within so yeah with um you know with apologies to uh to 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 it being a white male poem that i poet that i'm adding to the canon this week um everything i've ever heard about frank stanford is that he should be paid attention to more and um that uh that first quote about him getting at a some of poetry's more primal and mysterious possibilities is uh exactly what I like so much about reading it. Um, so, and I picked this one because I love this poem, but also it was the first one I read and, you know, sometimes that just sticks with you. So this is the title poem from the collection, The Singing Knives. Um, and I'm going to do a little affect because I think that, uh, I'd like to remind everyone that I am from Tennessee. 
And um, uh, you should go to the Poetry Foundation's website and find a video of uh, Frank's friend Bill Willett reading this poem. I think this poet, this poem demands to be read this way. <laughs> the dogs woke me up. I knocked, looked out the window. Jimmy ran down the road with a knife in his mouth. He was naked and the moon was dead floating down the river. He jumped on a gypsy's pony. He rode through camp. I could see the dust. There was a saddlebag full of knives. He was crazy. When Jimmy cut a throat, the eyes rolled back in the head like they was baptized, I tell you. When he cut a throat, it was like Agabegno's guitar, and the blood flew out like a quail. He had the red hand. He poked the eyes out. I dreamed I stepped over a log, and there was a fire on my foot. I dreamed I saw a turkey with two wildcats jumped on me at the same time. I dreamed Jimmy was pouring ice water over my head at noon. I dreamed somebody was singing outside the light outhouse, and I dreamed that the mad dog bit the gypsy, and they tied him to a tree. I dreamed I was buried in the Indian mound, and the moon lake rose up. I dreamed my father was waiting in the river of death with a heart in his hand. I dreamed Jimmy rode out the front door with a hawk on his shoulder, and I was in the bow kneeling down. I dreamed the back snake rode the guitar down the river. I dreamed the clouds went by, the moon like a dead fish. I dreamed I was dragging a cotton snack with a dead man in it. I dreamed the fish bandits stole the hogs off my lines, and there was one of them on hunchback. I dreamed the night was a horse with its eyes shut. I dreamed I had to fight the good man with a bad arm, and he had the dynamite. I dreamed I trailed a buck from Panther Blake to Panther Burn. I dreamed the Chickasaw slit his throat from the Papaw. I dreamed the rising sun was smoking blood you could pick up and throw. I dreamed the Chinaman's peg leg. I dreamed I was fishing in heaven and show enough and Jesus cleaned the fish. I dreamed a man flies wouldn't bite. I dreamed I was riding through the Leland in a dragline bucket and the cotton making every day. I dreamed we got the bootlickers truck out and bug. I dreamed the levee broke. I dreamed the gypsy was laughing under the water and the minnows were flying through the eyes. I dreamed I reached down in Moon Lake, untied his arms, and one hand floated up the way it did when he threw those knives. I dreamed the pony that fights in the water and the boat that towed the dead man. I dreamed that I, the, the knife singing in Abigango's back. I dreamed I pulled a ring out of his car, and Jimmy put it on his finger and swam through the water, and I dreamed he was looking for Abigango's boot, and I dreamed he came up, and when he had the jackknife between his teeth, I dreamed he was so beautiful he had to die someday. I dreamed a knife like a song you can't whistle. Let's go. I got the throw tonight, he says. He put the bandana around his neck and the pilot's cap on, and he played the harp in the moonlight. I had led the horse out back. I tied him to the chinaberry tree. What you want, I said, but I knew he wanted me. Standing up at the back of the outhouse, shut up, he says, don't move. The dirt daubers flew around my head. He threw Boojay cack at me. He threw a Django at me. The mosquitoes drew blood. I looked on the ground. I saw the shadows coming like gars swimming under me at the moonlight. I dreamed a red moon, too. I wished I was running a trot line. I wished I was in a fight. I wished I was fanning myself in church. But there was a heart of a fan with a switchblade on it. Then the knives came by. The bone handled one. The hawk handled one. One with a blade on a skiff out his boot, behind his back, Mexican style, the way Abinego showed him. And singing in the outhouse like a horse breaking wind, he took the knife and ran it across his arm. Then he ran it across mine. Blood came out like hot soda. He tied our arms together with a blue bandana, and we lay down in the cotton. I wished I was riding a mule somewhere, blowing a jug with a string full of crappy and the cotton making every day. Ooh. So that's Frank Stanford. <laughs> so part Abe Smith impression. <laughs> part Bill Willett, part Abe Smith impression. <laughs> but uh, no, the reason I, I do insist on reading it that way is like he is the ultimate read out loud poet to me. And I just. Mm-hmm. There are, um, 
what draws me to him is how ecstatic he is. Uh, Every line flows and flows images and metaphor pile up on top of each other. And it's not that it feels effortless. It's that it feels uniquely him, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, like nobody else could have written Frank Stanford poems. There's nobody else (laughs) in the world who could have written Frank Stanford poems. Um, And then at the same time as a, as a Southerner, there's something very familiar there. There's some kind of, something very recognizable about the chaos in his work, um, the sticky sweatiness. um, And, uh, you know, he, he fills a certain archetype. Like there, there's, there's some Southern archetypes. There's the vicious redneck. There's the dignified, slow talking. I do declare guy. There's the pearl clutching. I do declare woman. But my favorite is the rapid-talking, ecstatic guy, the Boonhauer from King of the Hill. Um, and that's what all of Frank Stanford's poems read like to me. And it's, it's just, I, I just, I just, I love the rhythm of it so much. I love the rhythm. I love the music so much. For sure. For sure. I, I mean, I, I fully agree. Um, like we got to talk about just like an, an original. Absolutely. Thinking of, of, of what you say, of, of yeah, you have these blurbs that are literally about like i've never heard of this guy um and uh kind of similar to what i was saying about wanda coleman where i hope the the release of her selected poems increases the conversation and on some level i it has um but on another level i do have the worry of of frank stanford's collected came out in 2015 um yeah and people were you know and there was at least some discussion um of oh is this is this when he finally gets gets his due Um, right and a few years later, it's like kind of the same. I, I feel like I hear and see the same amount, you know? Yeah. Um, and Battlefield Where the Moon Says I Love You, his, uh, his great, was it 15,000 line epic? It's, uh, it's, something insane like that. Um, 1,500 maybe. Yeah. Uh, but that was out of print until that one edition came out in 2011, 2012, something like that. Something like that, yeah. But it was yeah. out of print for like 30 years. It was out of print for a very long time, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, it's it, it when you were talking about Wanda Coleman, I was like, oh, we have accidental connecting themes here this week. Right. Um, Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So Frank died in 1978, I believe. Yeah. Right. That's right. A suicide. Right. Mm. Um, God, yeah. So Battlefield where the Moon Said They Love You came out a year before that. I'm sure it was out of print for a while. Um, he has that very classic. I, I have been on this Wikipedia page many a time, yeah. <laughs> especially when I was reading Battlefield, um, where part of the mystique, obviously dying young does that. Um, right. Like it's always going to. Yeah. Right. Um, but also there's like these weird like misprints on several of his books about like the year he was born or where he's from kind of things. Oh, yeah. That yeah. create this sense of mystery, you know, of who is this guy, which is interesting because, you know, like, there's, there's this really cool, just a couple minute long documentary that I don't fully understand, but it's just like people from where he lived talking about him. That was like filmed when he was alive. I don't know if he was, he was somehow involved with it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's an, enough of him, people that knew him and there was people who knew him at the time that are still alive. Um, I guess CD Wright passing, um, a couple of years ago was probably a big hit because she was really involved with, because they were in a relationship together at one point. Right. She was well, really involved. that's a uh, part of why he committed suicide because right. they were in a relationship and uh, C.D. Wright was not Frank Stanford's second wife. And Frank Stanford's second wife was upset 
and they argued right. and yeah yeah um another she funny connection the other that last edition the 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 battlefield um the new edition of that she was involved with that yeah um, the um the, uh, the 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 bill willett video that i was referencing earlier um a uh, friend of the program hannah cohen uh tweeted a cd right poem last night and I just responded to her. I was like, oh, this is crazy. You're bringing up C.D. Wright. I was just reading about C.D. Wright because she was with Frank Stanford. And Hannah tweeted back, uh, I think she was married to, um, uh, what's his name? Where, uh, um, Forrest Gander. Forrest Gander, yeah. yeah. And uh, Forrest Gander filmed this Bill Willett video. Jeez, that I yeah, have. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, everyone's just involved with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's um, a it's it's a it is a head spinning rabbit hole you can go down if you if you do right. any research on Frank Stanford. Right. Um, that that I don't know. That brings up a couple interesting things. Uh, of one of I don't know the weird ways um, where, and this happens in all art forms. But yeah, of like clickiness within yeah overlap. Some of my famous poets and artists and whatever, um, which is all I don't know. In some ways, it's really interesting and cool. In some ways, it's like, I hate that. <laughs> some ways, like, it's interesting. In some ways, it's just other. like, oh, these people thought similarly, so they gravitated towards each other. Like, it's not that deep, you know? Like that kind that, of thing. I mean, and then also yeah. just the way that, like, I mean, it happens. It's, I think, a new, kind of neutral thing, but just of, like, um, people help, you know, like, uh, him and CD Wright, like, were involved with starting the press together. Like, people helping each other and putting up, sure. you know, putting up with friends yeah. stuff. That kind of thing. And sometimes you all get popular and sometimes you don't um yeah. i don't know but um bob and chris played pickup basketball together and then they started a podcast it's not that deep <laughs> right. um but but i mean I, we have fallen into the classic frank thing there's so much to talk about about him yeah without even talking about the poem <laughs> without even talking about the poem and yeah yeah and i mean i, I i'm i'm afraid that i'm like the, the wrong person to talk about Frank's poetry because I really the the real thing I like about him is just like letting those poems wash over me and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. almost the more I think about them the more I I kind of retreat from thinking about them because I just want to experience them right that's really interesting because he he has um, I, again I haven't read I haven't read too much it's funny that I've read Battlefield but I haven't read too much of the other stuff right um, but I mean, a lot of the stuff I've read and this very much feels and this was written before he published battlefield it feels very much like a precursor to it um oh 100 percent, yeah definitely and uh but just yeah it's funny to hear that in the sense of that so much of what he writes is narrative and like there is a story to follow um yeah but i agree there's so many characters and landscapes and there are cars everywhere always cars (laughs) always cars which Um, is a horrifying fish (laughs) just horrifying looking but I, I, I agree. I want to hear the poem more than I want to think about um, the, uh, the, the. I want. I want. I like the language and hearing it more sometimes than I'm interested in the narrative. Um, yeah, man, he dreams a lot. He does dream. He does. He does. <laughs> the, he does dream. My uh, the my first album as uh, the shipwreck sailor called "I Dreamed a Knife Like a Song You Can't Whistle." After this poem. Ah. Googled that line the other day. I come up before Frank Stanford does. And I am 
so ashamed. I am so sorry <laughs> to the ghost of Frank Stanford. Frank Stanford should come up before I come up. And I'm the first in on Google, not Frank Stanford. And I hate it. Um, that said, everyone go uh, buy my album on Bandcamp. <laughs> Dreams a lot. He loves knives. <laughs> loves knives. Loves knives. He, he has these recurring characters. Um, like, uh, who's in this poem? Uh, Abing Nengo comes back a lot in this book. Hmm. Uh, Django comes back in this book. Uh, is there is Jimmy in this poem? Yep, Jimmy's in this poem. Jimmy is everywhere in his poetry. Yeah, right. Uh, Jimmy was an important figure. Yeah. Um, which is, is also is like a... That's also such a Southern thing that I love very much. Like, mm. if you go to a small Southern town, it's just like, well, you remember when Jimmy did X, Y, and Z, and you just kind of like gesture and hand wave away, like, usually something terrible. And like... <laughs> And uh, everyone just knows which Jimmy you're talking about. Right. Everyone knows which jail stint Jimmy just had, you know, like that sort of thing. Right. Um, it's felt very familiar. I don't know if Frank's <laughs> Jimmy ever went to jail, but, you know. Yeah, there's something so interesting about what he does. Um, you use the word ecstatic at some point that's so crucial to it. Um, this language pouring out a lack of punctuation in a way that's really meaningful, that's meant to keep you from stopping, but that there is this... There is this plot hanging on, hanging around in the background, but there's yeah. also this movement between the literal, just like telling what's happening um, into conversation that happens really quickly into some sort of kind of mystical, did this really happen or is this still your dreams or whatever? Yeah. Um, that I think is really, is really fascinating. Um, and I don't quite know anyone who does something like that or does it so well um, of this mixture between it's kind of very deeply a first person retelling the events and talking about their life, but also this kind of spiritual thing going on. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, uh, so I have a, I have a, you know, half, half form thoughts about this, uh, that, uh, I'm not going to articulate super well, but it, I remember taking a class on magical realism Mm -hmm. And a professor arguing that, um, or bringing up the critical perspective that uh, magical realism doesn't exist in America. And I was like, yes, it, yes, it does. Absolutely, it does. I think that's starting to get a little bit of shine these days with um, things like Lovecraft Country, um, a bunch of writers that are too numerous to name. But yeah, I think, I think Frank gets at this really uniquely American sp spiritual and mystical experience that... Uh, feels like haunted by religion, but isn't religious, um, which feels very, very American too. Like Frank spent his whole life in Arkansas and Tennessee and like, you can't, you can't escape religion down there. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think he taps into that. He taps into, I always, I've never seen a video of Frank Stanford reading, but I always picture it in like a revival tent, you know, like one of those traveling, like a, uh, uh, traveling, um, uh, uh, pop-up churches that they have down in the South. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's something extremely mystic about it, for sure. You were saying, too, that idea of the reading out, out loud being so critical to it, um, and then kind of the piling on. I don't know if you'll like this comparison, but what comes to mind, to me, that's very much a Whitman thing. Uh, oh, like sure. Those yeah, are, yeah, those no, are poems yeah. that I really like to read out loud, um, and sometimes more than even think about what's going on or what they mean, you know, it's a sure. the language is rich and the language just keeps coming. Um, 
and that feels very much part of what Stanford does. Yeah, I I I, I think that comparison is accurate. Um, uh, and I, I don't dislike Whitman. Um, I just like making fun of you for how much you like Whitman. <laughs> but not talking about uh, poetry on the podcast without Whitman. <laughs> We're not doing it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely a, a lineage there of um, yeah. of that that long poem that 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 piling up of stuff. The closest comparison that comes to mind, uh, you know, Abraham Smith. Yeah, yeah, um, and you've seen him read. I don't know if I have. Oh man, he's an excellent reader. He's wonderful. Um, he like his voice goes all high pitched, and he's like he's like shouting, and like his leg is shaking, and I mean he's he's he is a um, he's a revival preacher of a reader. He's incredible. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, uh, I think I was I was reading Abe and Frank around the same time, right. which is why I compare them. But like they also are very similar, and like yeah, just you 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 can't help but hear the. Uh, Hear the enthusiasm, hear the, uh, right. the the thrill of reading out loud when you read these <laughs> poems, I think. For sure. So yeah, I'm not very smart this week, but I, I, I hope I am uh, uh, at least imparting some sense of the type of joyous thrill that these poems bring to me, which right. sometimes is the best thing about poetry. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and would, would echo with those frank poems, you want to read them out loud um, yeah. or, or hear someone reading them. And they are like... I kind of actually going back to our conversation about uh, the canon last week um, for someone who's not from the South, who's not used to some of the accent and some of the vernacular. um, There are some Mm -hmm. ways that it does feel similar. There are things that I don't quite follow, you know? Sure. Um, sure. There's an instinct, especially with, with the plot hanging around the background, there's an instinct to try and, you know, dissect it for meaning. um, Sure. That I, I think, um, is is a way to read it, and it's there. It's valuable. Um, oh yeah, it's especially there. As, like your first time reading it. We we could do forty five minutes on that if we wanted to. I'm just, <laughs> I didn't put that in my notes. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I I I just would encourage any listener, any theoretical listener who has never <laughs> read Frank before, um, let the language wash over you. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I, you can't see it, but the light, the the light is coming. Uh, in through my blinds right now. Uh, Bob, Bob is painted with sunlight and, uh, <laughs> and and drapes on his face right now. And he is motioning towards the sky like he's letting a warm shower drift over him on a cold day. And, but uh, if I just put the Zoom screen on black and white, it's some, uh, whatchamacallit, it's, a, it's... Yeah, it's real film noir, yeah. Yeah, it's film uh-huh. noir. Yeah. Chirosco, uh-huh. I think is the word I'm looking for. I, I taught a film class one time. I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> Look like Bogart. Okay, that's that's what that's what she looks. So yeah, yeah, like you're saying, yeah. To any hypothetical listener who wants to explore Frank, yeah, read Frank Stanford first and foremost out loud. And your first time reading, just like let it wash over you, and then save all the critical stuff for the second time you read. All right. So before we get too lost in the weeds about uh, how much we love talking about Frank Stanford, too late. Um, Let's uh let's let's talk some hoops. So this week, last week we were talking about uh, uh your favorite canonical NBA player, your favorite pre nineteen seventy seven NBA player. Who, since the topic this week is uh, poet, poets, we wish got more shine. Who's an NBA player you think deserves more shine than they get, or or you wish had achieved greater highs? Ooh, interesting. Okay, so mine. 
is Avritis Sabonis. Um, and that's partially out of annoyance because of all the apocryphal stories about how good he was before he blew out his knees, but there's no footage of it because of, because of the cold war. Um, like that's, that's irritating to me. It's like, why can't I see it then? You know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, uh, you know, we'll never know what, you know, like these possibly exaggerating sports writers, like how much is truth, how much is legend fiction, exaggerated stuff. Um, I'm also attached to him because of that Blazers team that melted down the 2000 playoffs. Um, really love them. Like, just like, look, coolest players on that, on that team. Scotty Pippen, Rashi Wallace, Steve Smith, Detlef Shrimp, Damon Stoudemire, Brian Grant, Bonzi Wells, Avrius Sabonis. That's just their top eight. All those dudes are cool. All those dudes are cool. And how much cooler would the world be if that team won a championship instead of those miserable Shaq Kobe Lakers teams? We could have had, at the turn of the century, a championship team built around big guards and three-point shooting centers, and instead we got discount 90s bulls with some fat tall guy, and I hate it. I hate it. Anyway, Sabonis should have come to the league sooner and petty geopolitical rivalries that lead to pointless proxy wars and nuclear arms races shouldn't spill over into basketball. That's my rant. I love the parallel universe. Um, One, where both the Blazers and the Kings get one of the three Lakers rings. Oh, it'd be great. Um, It'd be so great. Um, I would love the way that um, both Kobe and Shaq whatever would happen like it, in the circumstance where they only win one out of those three rings, the alternate universe where whatever direction they both go. And I want it, I want it so bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, um, I, I, I do think it, it's interesting um, to think historically what would have happened. Uh, one, if Sabonis was able to come over sooner, yeah, assuming he's as good as they said he was. Um, right. They said he was shooting threes and he was seven right. to three, you know? Yeah. And two, um, if, uh, Petrovic had not died. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much quicker the European kind of expansion um, into the league would have been. Um, yeah, because like, Drazen was the best of those guys, wasn't he? Like, in theory. Um, he got, I think, like three or four years um, before he was um, before he died. You know, yeah, so it, just you wonder what yeah. that would have looked like. Um, yeah. And could the game have expanded globally even quicker? Um, yeah. Would be interesting. So the thing that came to my mind is I almost like the idea of taking uh, this, or I think like the equivalent, we found a way to make a connection last week. I think an interesting question here would be like a guy uh, who's not in the Hall of Fame who should be. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, I like it. that. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I'd have to think about it. You who um, famously hates the fact that Mitch Richmond's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Which I've come around on, actually. I think I agree with you. Um, uh, well, so I actually was one of the more softer ones on this. The the, the Slack channel right? hates Mitch Richmond being in there, and I think they're right. But like, it's it's uh, it's such a good conversation. <laughs> For me, it's like I just think it's fun. I I think like I don't even know if Mitch Richmond should be in the Hall of Fame, but I think that like there should be a part of the Hall of Fame that acknowledges things that were cool, like the run TMC warriors, you know? Right. Right. Two things to stop you there on one, uh, the Nate Smith basketball hall of fame in Springfield, Massachusetts is an incredible museum. 
It's so much fun. You got to go. I, I should go. go. I have not been. Um, we had I, Kevin and Kate were visiting, and uh, and when I was living in Boston, we made a we made a day out of it. So oh, you that's can play right. basketball yeah. in the middle of it. Oh, a bunch that's of kids sick. shooting around. It's great. That's awesome. Um, uh, what's nice about Mitch Richmond being in the Hall of Fame is like he becomes the bar. He is the worst player in the right. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Like, That's true, yeah. <laughs> we have a bar. Yeah. Um, okay, so players who uh, don't get enough shine or I wish were better. I mean, the obvious Bob answer in, in both ways is Lamar Odom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in both ways. Yeah. Both ways. I wish he was better. I wish he got more shine. Um, he does not get a Hall of Fame place, a Hall of Interesting, Hall of Cool. Um, yeah. You know, a, a, a Player of some comment, Sam Cassell. <laughs> Another sure. one that I feel deeply about this. Um, I, I I think very obvious ones, but uh, you know, just wish we could you know replay um, their careers a hundred times because we'd probably choose better versions. But Penny Hardaway and Grant Hill, I want to see. Yeah, I want to see what those careers look like so badly. You are making a a list of people who would super benefit from coaches being smarter and shoe technology being better. (laughs) Like Penny Hardaway, Grant Hill and Lamar Odom should be like, you know, the, uh, the precursors to, um, I mean, who like Ben Simmons, LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like they Mm -hmm. should be the precursors to those guys. Um, and instead coaches just didn't know how to use Lamar and, um, uh, there are those unconfirmed things like when some Nike executive told some sports writer sometime, like ask Grant Hill if he wishes he signed with us instead of Fila or something like that, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which always sticks out to me. Um, uh, Penny wore Nikes, right? Yeah. Nike, Nike's a Reebok. Shaq had a Nike had a Reebok contract in when he was in Orlando. I don't Penny know what had... Penny did. The foam posits. It's definitely a Nike shoe. They're yeah. absurd. You'll, you would recognize them. They're absurd. Only Nike could get Chris Rock for the commercials. Wait, no, that was Sprite. That was Sprite. Never mind. Uh, I'm sorry. I guess I guess I will leave it at those four answers. Part of me wants to keep coming up with more. Well, much like a critical discussion of Frank, O'Hare, of Frank Stanford, we could go for hours on NBA players we wish were cooler. And that's what – or wish were – had better careers, but you know right. that's what video games are for. <laughs> uh, do, do we want to real quick lock in? Uh, we are three games into the Eastern Conference Finals. We are one game into the Western Conference Finals. What's what's the finals going to be? I'm going. Next uh, week we'll know. I'm Maybe. going. Uh, yeah, we might know by the time this episode's posted. <laughs> um, so right now, Lakers are up one zero on the Nuggets, and uh, the Heat are up two one on the Celtics. Right. Correct. Yeah. I'm going Heat Lakers. I uh, I think the I think Celtics have more that. talent, but I think the Heat have more juice. Right. I think I want that. I'm a little. I don't buy Brad Stevens as much as the mainstream media does. Um, sure. But that I watched that game last night, and I was like, mm, they might have figured something out. Okay. I, yeah. I definitely agree. I think they have more talent. I'd be thrilled with Jimmy Butler in the finals. Let's go. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I um yeah I, I I didn't watch last night's game. It was a strategic non-watch, um, but uh, I guess I am resting my laurels on 
Bam Adebayo playing Daniel Tice off the floor. Daniel Tice, <laughs> who I like, who, who's like during this whole bubble situation, been like, like cool yeah. what a cool, what a, what another cool guy on the Celtics. I like all the Celtics players, which I hate doing, and I like all the Heat players, which I hate doing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, and you know, Brad Stevens is a good coach, but um, uh, uh, I think Spolster's better. I think Spolster's better, and I can't believe I'm saying it, but I think Spolster's better. <laughs> And, um, uh, and I think, what I was uh, too is a lot of likable, a lot of really good players. I think Bam is the most likable and the most important player in the series. Like one hundred percent, I'd agree with that. Yeah, he's incredible. Ugh. yeah. I would also go so far as to say that uh, Brad Stevens' reputation, while deserved, is inflated by the fact that uh, uh, one of the CEOs of the biggest sports websites in the world is <laughs> from Boston. <laughs> Notably partisan. (laughs) 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 All right. That's been an episode. Our uh, music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our art is done by A.M. Strickland. We will talk to you guys next week.